Thank you, Pastor Brian. I want to mention that it's great to have Lydia Williams back with us after caring for her uh, father up in Michigan. Uh, Cindy's about to make the same kind of journey uh, to be with her daughter as she uh, delivers her child. You're leaving tomorrow? Tuesday. All right. So we want to remember uh, Tim and Cindy the same way we were praying for Spencer and Lydia uh, this coming week. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 today, I, I'd encourage you to grab one from the seat under, uh, in front of you or open your phone so that you can follow along with us. Let me read our passage this morning and then we'll dive into these verses. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of God, his inerrant, his authoritative, his breathed out word. Uh, may he bless what we have read, and I'm going to pray and ask for his help as we explore Psalm 15 together this morning. Father, I lift up uh, the body sitting in front of me. I pray that you would strengthen both them and me this morning with your spirit to hear your word, uh, Lord, uh, to hear with our spiritual ears and our, our hearts open to receive what your word has to say. I ask, Lord, that you would give me strength of mind and, and my voice to proclaim your truth. And, Lord, I pray that uh, our body would receive it as truth, as your word. Father, above all, we ask that your word would change and transform us in, into the image of Jesus, your son, that you would continue this work until he returns for us. Savior, we commit ourselves to you this morning and ask this in your name. Amen. Who's allowed to enter the presence of the Lord for worship? Is it open to just anyone? Or is it limited in some way? Are there conditions that must be met? Does everyone have equal access to God? Or, or are there stipulations and requirements or prerequisites that must be fulfilled. Who is it that can enjoy communion with God? Who's allowed access to the presence of our holy God? Now why am I asking this this morning? Uh, why do I put such a question before you? Well, it's because of what we saw in Psalm 14 last week. Glance up the page to the previous psalm and look at the very beginning with me. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul uh, quotes this psalm in Romans chapter 3 and reaches the same conclusion, none is righteous, no, not one. And so we concluded last week from Psalm 14 uh, that humankind is not basically okay or good, as we so often hear. With the exception of Christ, every human who's ever walked the face of the planet has been corrupted by sin. And further, every part of us has been corrupted by sin. Our thoughts, 
our emotional life, our wishes, our desires, our passions. Theologians refer to this as total depravity. It's not that humans are as bad as they could be. Uh, total depravity means that every part of us is corrupted and tainted by sin. This is why I ask the question, who's allowed to enter the Lord's presence and worship him? Given our human condition that David described in the previous psalm, is anyone allowed access to the presence of our holy God? Is there anyone who can enjoy communion with God, who can speak with him face to face? This is the question David asks as Psalm 15 begins. Uh, this first part of Psalm 15 that I've entitled the Lord's Holy Presence, David inquires about who can enter the Lord's presence for worship. And I'd like to point out two things about David's question. The first is the location that he's talking about. What place is he referring to in verse 1? O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The tent that he refers to is a reference to the earthly tabernacle. This is before the temple was built, obviously, by Solomon, his son. This was the same tent that the Lord instructed Israel to build in the book of Exodus, and which contained the Ark of the Covenant that you see back here in the Holy of Holies. Uh, it's on this ark, or above this ark, rather, uh, that, um, where, where, which was where the Lord's presence was located, the cloud of his presence. And across this lid uh, of the ark, the high priest would sprinkle blood once a year on the Day of Atonement to, to atone or cover for Israel's sins. It's the same tent that Israel traveled with for 40 years throughout their wilderness wanderings, assembling it where the Lord had had them set up camp and disassembling it whenever he told them to move on. It was uh, Israel's place of worship. By the time David is, is writing these words, he's the king of Israel, and he has assembled this enclosure, the, the tent and the, the precinct around it uh, on Mount Zion. He says, he refers to it as your holy hill uh, in the city of David, what was previously known as Mount Moriah. Uh, Mount Moriah was the place where Abraham took Isaac, where the Lord provided a substitute offering for our Isaac. This is, this is what David's referring to. This is the location that verse 1 is talking about. Who may enter in your tent? Of course, inside the actual tent, only the priests and high priests can enter. The high priest was allowed only here once a year, and other priests uh, entered here, as did Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, to burn incense, and uh, other Jews uh, were allowed in the outer courts near the uh, altar for burnt offering. Second thing, in addition to the location, I want you to see uh, who David is referring to here. Who is he talking about? The person that he has in mind here. Uh, David asks the Lord about the kind of person that can worship at the, at the tabernacle. Who's qualified? And this, this gets us to our question we're after uh, this morning. Who's allowed to enter for worship? Again, who? Uh, shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And taken together, like they are in verse 1, the tent and the holy hill referred to, uh, uh, together they, they describe the Lord's presence in Israel. David's not just interested in who can enter this enclosure behind me on the screen. He's interested in the kind of person that could enter the presence of a holy God, the kind of person who could come before Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the, the true king of Israel. You might remember that the men of Israel were called to travel to Jerusalem three times a year uh, to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering, also known as Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. 
Some Bible scholars believe that the pilgrims would be singing this song on their way there to remind them of the kind of life they were required to live when they weren't in Jerusalem at the feast. That they are called to live by God's word through, those, through the rest of the year uh, when they're not in the presence of the Lord at the tabernacle. Others believe that this song might have even been used at the entrance to the tabernacle, kind of a, kind of a mini catechism, if you were, with with the worship, uh, the worshiper asking the question in verse one, and and then the the Levitic gatekeeper giving the reply in verses two through five. They're not certain that that was used like that, but at the very least, Psalm 15 reminded the person who would draw near of how high the bar was set, of how high the standard was to enter the Lord's presence. This is a question that every worshiper needs to answer for himself, including you and I, even though we don't worship at the tent or temple. What's required to enter the presence of a holy God? given the human condition that David describes in Psalm 14, how is it possible that such a one can come before and commune with a God of utter holiness and purity? A God high and lifted up, a God with majestic splendor, a God who caused Isaiah to fall at his feet, uh, who, who caused Isaiah to, to believe he was about to be extinguished. Who is it then that can speak intimately with this kind of God? Well, this is what the rest of our psalm answers. Uh, the second section, uh, David goes on to describe the believer's blameless wife a blameless life uh, the second section reveals that anyone who desires to enter God's presence must be blameless if you desire to come before the Lord through prayer or if you desire to spend eternity with the Lord after you die the standard required to enter his presence is a life characterized by holiness that's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. What do I mean by a holy life? What do I mean by a blameless life? Well, David explains this uh, beginning in verse 2 and extending through verse 5. Uh, some people say there are 10 characteristics here. Some say there are 11. Some say there are 12. I think personally there are 11 as other people have done. I've, I've arranged these 11 under five headings. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list of any, everything that goes into a blameless life. They summarize what a blameless life looks at. And, and in these five headings, we'll see that there are five traits of a blameless and holy life. The first trait is wholehearted obedience. Anyone who wants to enter God's presence must live a life that conforms to his word. And let me point, about, point out three things about wholehearted obedience to you. Just looking at verse 2. First, he walks blamelessly. As verse 2 says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Blamelessly means innocent, whole, even tempered and sound. It's a it's a very broad category. You could think of it as an umbrella category that, uh, that uh, includes the rest of the verse. This is a, a very broad general one. While the, the further we go, uh, David becomes more uh, specific. Uh, someone with integrity. And right from the start, we see that the bar, again, is set extremely high for Old Testament worshipers. Uh, but uh, again, this is no different from the statement in the New Testament where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then Matthew 5 uh, earlier where he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So first, this blameless man uh, uh, must walk, live blamelessly. 
the second uh, trait that we see is that he does what is right. Uh, as verse 2 goes on to say, he walks blamelessly and, and does what is right. That, that means his actions conform to a standard. They are right actions or righteous actions that conform to the standard of God revealed in the Bible. This person lives in obedience to what the Word of God says. Not just a hearer, but a doer of the Word. He does what is right. And then thirdly, and it's already up there for you, he speaks truth in his heart. As the very end of verse 2 says, and speaks truth in his heart. Remember that for the Jewish person, the, the heart was the control center, the cockpit. We refer to the heart as where our emotions are based. This is it's more than that in the Jewish mind. His, his uh, thinking life, his uh, decision-making, his volitional center, as well as his emotions, uh, is centered in his heart. Uh, and, and this piece, person speaks truth in his heart. And just think about what a, what a significant contrast this is to the fool. We looked at in verse 14. Uh, 14.1 says, the, the fool says in his heart there is no God. But the righteous man or woman speaks what is reliable, what is certain and sure, what lines up with reality, what is, what is truth. This rounds out that first trait of wholehearted obedience. So what, what kind of person is eligible to enter the Lord's presence? Who can come before the Lord and worship Him? It's the person who lives with wholehearted obedience to the Lord. The person whose life consistently lines up with the standard of God's Word. Jesus repeated this in John chapter 8. Uh, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. David goes on and gives us a second trait of the uh, blameless or the righteous man or woman. Uh, the second trait that he describes is edifying speech. Now, we don't use the word edifying very much, and I'm using it on purpose. Um, we get the word edifice from uh, that word. The front of our building has an edifice. And this kind of speech, edifying speech, is speech that builds other people up. And edifying speech was much shorter than typing out that whole phrase. It's speech that builds other people up. Um, they're not harmful to those around him. And I want to point out three things about edifying speech that David mentions here. Uh, first of all, he doesn't slander, as verse 3 tells us. Look with me at verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue? Slander refers to spreading malicious comments behind someone's back. It's to spread damaging gossip that is untrue or unverified. Uh, unfortunately, this is all too common in Christ's church, is it not? Slander, though, is not a characteristic of the godly person. It's not supposed to be. The Bible says that slander and gossip is the characteristic of an ungodly person, according to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.18 begins... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress their truth. And then Paul goes on to describe specifically characteristics of the unrighteous person. Further down he says they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but get approval to those who practice them. The blameless man or woman does not slander. And then the second thing he says about edifying speech is that he does no harm. Verse 3 goes on to say this, and does no evil to his neighbor. Uh, evil is, is that which 
causes distress or injury to someone. It's that which causes someone pain. And since the verse before it is about speech and the verse, the phrase after it is about speech, I believe this evil is referring to evil or harm done with our words. Uh, it's injury caused by our words to our neighbor. Uh, again, the Bible calls us to love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 that the righteous person is one who who loves their neighbor and not not harms them or injures them with their speech. So secondly, he does no harm. And then thirdly, he does not scorn. Third thing to see about this edifying speech and the very last phrase in verse 3 says, "Nor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Uh, Reproach can have a good Uh, and constructive connotation to it, it can also have a very negative uh, idea behind it. It it refers here to sharp criticism, open disrespect. Uh, To reproach someone is to publicly disgrace them or discredit them. And the object of reproach is not the neighbor here, it's his friend, his close associate, his companion. The godly man or woman doesn't start this, nor does he join in when someone else has started it. Note the wording here, uh, and nor takes up a reproach. That is, uh, carries it on, spreads it further, agrees with it. He doesn't repeat it to others. She doesn't spread it around. This is a third third part of edifying speech and this rounds out this second trait who's able to enter the Lord's presence who can come before the Lord and worship him who who can know him face to face now and forever it's this kind of person with edifying speech the person whose words are not malicious or harmful to to those around him Their, their words build other people up This is the very thing that Ephesians 4 calls us to. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Older versions say edification. Um, As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Oh, let's just pause and think about how difficult this is. As one who has struggled with his speech in my uh, adolescent years, uh, it's very hard. And not only by God's Spirit are we able to control what comes out of our mouth. Loose lips not only sink ships, they sink people. Think how often we let let something fly. Uh, The book of James says the tongue is a world of evil. A world of evil. Full of deadly poison and set on fire by hell. Your mouth is probably the most dangerous organ you have in your body. The most prone to sin. person who's eligible to approach God speaks and uses edifying speech. David goes on to describe a third trait. The third trait that he goes on to describe is allegiance to God's interests. The godly person loves what the Lord loves and hates what he hates. Look at verse 4 with me. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. A vile person refers to someone who's rejected the Lord. This is a hardened sinner that David is referring to. What uh, used to be called a reprobate. Um, And this kind of person is treated lightly. This kind of person doesn't receive honor from the godly man or woman. This, the righteous person looks on their lifestyle with 
not admiration, but with, with disdain, with contempt even. On the other hand, those who fear the Lord, those who show reverence for Christ and his commands, those who make it their priority to do what pleases the Lord, these are treated with honor and respect by the godly man or woman. The righteous person looks up to them. One of my seminary professors points out in his commentary on the Psalms that believers often do the exact opposite of this. That we honor the vile person and treat those who fear the Lord with contempt. Christians often honor the godless people that our, that our popular culture holds up to us. And we think well and highly of these uh, uh, godless people and, and we tend to disregard and disrespect those who are following the Lord. Their lives are completely uninteresting compared to this godless person over here. These get our attention. These don't. And so my professor goes on to say, verse 4 is contrary to popular culture in which people tend to idolize many who are vile and worthless. Those who are righteous must have true spiritual discernment to determine who is worthy of honor. They must look beyond the flow of popularity to see who are truly devout, for these are the noble ones on the earth, and they should be honored. Wow! I think he nailed it. How often do we lift up rotten examples and admire athletes who, despite their ability, care nothing about God and flaunt, uh, flaunt his uh, word. But those who are trying to please the Lord, like your mom or dad, they don't know anything. And we treat them with contempt and dishonor. We've got it backwards. This is what this very idea is repeated by Paul in Romans 12. He says, Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. John uh, repeats this in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, let me ask again, what kind of person is eligible to enter the Lord's presence? Who, who is able to come before him and worship him? It's the person who demonstrates allegiance to the Lord's interests. The person who honors those who honor the Lord, but, but treat with contempt those who treat the Lord with contempt. This is the third trait. Someone with their uh, allegiance in the right place. David goes on, gives us a fourth trait. Uh, fourth, the blameless man is someone who's faithful to their commitments. The godly man or woman remains steadfast, even at great personal cost. As verse 4 goes on, it says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Uh, swear means to make a solemn promise or, or a vow even. It's to commit to a course of action uh, while calling on God to witness your commitment. Uh, but really, practically anyone can do this. Many often do. Even calling on God as their witness the key difference with, with the average person and the godly man or woman is, is they don't go back on their commitment when it becomes inconvenient or when it starts to cost them something. Look at verse 4 again. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. When the commitment they've made before God becomes costly, when the road becomes difficult, many bail at the first opportunity. And I simply ask you to think of the many wedding vows made before God and other witnesses that are simply cast aside by men and women who make those promises when things start to get difficult. The 
righteous person, on the other hand, will not change his vow even if he does get the chance. The, the righteous man or woman is a person of great integrity who keeps to their commitment. This is who can enter the Lord's presence, who can come before the Lord and worship him, the person who is, is faithful uh, to their commitments. One final trait for us to see here. This one, it's incredible how personal David gets. Um, and as one man said, I, I leave off preaching and, and have gone to meddling when I get to this next one. You might think that, but it's simply what the Word of God has to say. The fifth trait that the blameless man or woman has is a proper view of money. The godly person is not consumed by greed, but is generous with what God has given him. Let me mention two things about this proper view. I don't have room to put them on, my, on the screen, so you'll just have to uh, listen carefully first. The first thing I want to say about this proper view of money is he does not lend at interest. He's not out to make money at all costs. Look at verse 5 with me. Who does not put out his money at interest? Interest can be more literally translated. He does not put out his money with a bite. He doesn't lend money that bites the other person, the disadvantaged person. Uh, this is in reference to the poor of Israel. Sometimes the poor in Israel, because of their debts, would need to borrow money to avoid being sold into slavery. And lending money with a high interest rate was a common practice in the ancient world. Israelites were uh, told not to charge interest to fellow Israelites. Uh, because amongst uh, the ancient world, sometimes the interest rate was as high as 50%, which is more loan shark than, than lender, I, I think. But again, God's law would not allow Israel, Israelites to lend at interest to fellow Israelites. They were, they were called to, to help their disadvantaged brothers and sisters without charging. They were, they were not allowed to take advantage of them. Deuteronomy says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. And one scholar comments uh, that through these commands, uh, the Bible's generally ruling against extortion and promoting generosity. So he does, he does not, he's not out to get rich. Making money off the disadvantaged is not his priority. He does not lend an interest. And, and second here, not only does he not lend uh, or, or charge interest to a brother Israelite. He does not take bribes to pervert justice. He's not so entranced with money that he'll break the law to get more. Uh, the middle phrase in verse 5 says, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Uh, money does not consume him so much that he will do anything. He will sell his soul to make, make a buck or... or Worse, he'll sell the innocent and the disadvantaged to make a buck, to make a bribe. No, this person trusts the Lord to provide for them. And they would never violate their integrity for financial gain. So this is, this is a proper view of money. And of course, Jesus addresses this at length in the Gospels. Other New Testament letters address this in several places, but, but please listen to these words, these important words from the book of 1 Timothy. Apostle Paul writes to, to his young, young friend, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and the many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. A little later in the chapter he says, 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, that is, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, this is the person who can enter God's presence, who can come before the Lord and worship Him, who can know Him face to face. It's the righteous man or woman with a, with a proper view of money. Yahweh is his God, not, not money. This is a summary of a blameless life. This summarizes what that person needs. As David began in verse 1, who, who may sojourn in his tent, who may dwell on his holy hill, who can enter uh, to the tabernacle and bring his offerings before the Lord. It's the person with this kind of life, with, with these five traits that we've mentioned. This brings us to the third section of Psalm 15. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, the believer's blameless life. We go on now, thirdly, uh, to see the believer's confident assurance. And in this part of Psalm 15, it's really just one phrase at the very end of verse 5. In this third section, we find that the believer who does live a blameless life, who who uh, uh, displays these five traits that David has outlined for us. They will not be moved from the Lord's presence. They will dwell in spiritual security. Look at what it says. That very last line, he who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. And to me, this is I think the most troubling phrase in the entire psalm. And it's because of the word does. He who does these things. And maybe it raises a difficult, uh, a disturbing question in your mind. Pastor Rob. Who could ever do these things? Who could possibly live this kind of blameless life? I think this is the hardest part. If it's disturbing to us as we hear this, he who does these things, if it's disturbing and, and threatening in our minds, think of how it would have troubled the minds of David and his readers, the, and the men and family who recited this on their way uh, to the tabernacle for, for a, a festival. As they journeyed there and perhaps singing this song, this song would have been a painful reminder to them of their failure to do this of a reminder of their need for a sacrifice to provide atonement, uh, to bring an animal, uh, to provide a covering for their sin until the Lamb of God came, that perfect and spotless Son who would permanently atone for their sin. If we're thinking this, and I hope you are now, they would think this as well. Who can, who can live this way? And, and all the way up to Jerusalem, they would have been mulling over these words. Oh, boy. David admits how difficult it was just to himself. David confesses in other places how, how hard it is to live this blameless and, and holy life. In, in Psalm 143, he says this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Lord, nobody can nail Psalm 15. And again in Psalm 130, 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And then even David's son repeated this. And he said in Ecclesiastes, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So those on their way to the temple reciting these words would have been keenly aware of their need for a sacrifice to, to atone for sin, to provide a covering. But you and I live on the other side of the cross from them, don't we? You and I are on this side of the cross. On this side of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. What does God's word say to us who live in, in this era? This New Testament era. God's word tells us that there was only one sinless man ever. There was only one person who fulfilled Psalm 15 to the letter. One who perfectly kept God's law that ever lived a life of complete obedience and that person, of course, was Jesus Christ. Think of these different descriptions of Christ and his obedience. First of all, 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. And Peter says later, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And finally, 1 John 3, 5 says, you know, that there, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. There's only one man whoever nailed these and nailed all God's laws lived a life of perfect obedience before his father. And to us on this side of the cross, the word tells us further that he offered a better sacrifice. He offered a sacrifice that didn't have to be made year after year to atone for sin. He made one sacrifice of himself, which was far better than any sacrifice before him. Uh, Hebrews uh, brings this out. Well, there's 1 John 3, 5. Hebrews 9, 26 says, but, uh, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Oh, it gets better for us on this side of the cross. There's one, only one who, who did this that we've seen. Who made a better sacrifice for sin. It says further in the New Testament that his obedience is credited to us through faith. That Jesus' perfect obedience and, and sinless life can be credited to you and me. Oh, think of what that means. You have plastered over your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at, at you, He doesn't see your rotten performance this week. I'm saying that because I assume it was like mine. What does he see? He sees the perfect obedience of his son in your checking account. And so 
We see this by the one man's obedience. The many will be made righteous. In Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And now on this side of the cross, through personal faith in Christ, we are eligible to enter. We can now not just enter because His righteousness has been put on our account. We can boldly enter. Ephesians 2.11 Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And then Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And finally Hebrews 10.19 Therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Because his blameless life has been credited to us through our faith, our personal trust in his atoning death, anyone who has put their faith in his atoning death can come into the Lord's presence and worship can come before the Lord in communion with Him both now and in eternity. This is every believer's confident assurance. We began with the question of eligibility. Who's eligible to come before, the, before a holy God? And speak intimately with Him and enjoy communion with Him. It's only those, only those with blameless lives, only those may enter confidently into the Lord's holy presence for worship. And this blameless life can be ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And to anyone who puts their faith in His atoning death, can enter with this kind of confidence. And so I ask you this morning, has this blameless life been credited to your account? Do you know that, that you have trusted in His atoning death for your sin to cover and remove your sin has his blameless life been credited to you? Because if it hasn't, friend, there's no possible way that you and your humanity will fulfill verses 2 through 5 of Psalm 15 and you will not be allowed to enter his presence either now or in eternity. Has his blameless life been credited to you? I... I I ask, and if you're not sure, then please see me after the service or one of our elders. There's another very important application I think we need to make too, and that's for those who have trusted in Christ. And perhaps you feel rotten this morning because your performance last week was lousy. Let's be frank, it stank. And you've crawled in here this morning on your belly, barely able to call yourself one of his children. You see, if we put our, rest our hope and our assurance on our performance, you know what it'll do, won't you? It'll be like the craziest roller coaster ride you ever rode on. Anything at Six Flags will be nothing to your performance throughout the week. Yes, we might walk out of here pumped and uh, feeling close to the Lord and then Monday hits us right here. You go out in the driveway and the car won't crank. The dog's been irresponsible. (laughs) 
something happens. Something, anything happens, right? And before you know it, you're crashing in flames. Oh, yesterday was so good, but here I am Monday afternoon. We don't base we don't base our assurance on our performance. We base our assurance on Christ's performance. And when you sin, not if you sin, when you sin, because again, I know you're like me. When you sin, the devil will come on, come in your ear and whisper, how can you even pray after what you did? You, you slug. Yes, I did fail. But I'm not coming to God based on my performance. I'm coming to God to commune with Him and His Son because of Christ's performance. And it was perfect. And it's mine. It's mine. So if you feel rotten today, by all means, confess your sin. Confess your sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and then enter into the throne room and approach the throne of grace to receive mercy in time of need. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance that Christ's performance is what, it, what merits you to stand there. It makes you eligible to stand there before the God of the universe and ask for his help. That's what makes you eligible. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for uh, those here who have never received credit for your obedient life and who have never trusted in your atoning death, and I pray that you would draw that one to you, that they could have that great burden lifted from them to know your profound love, uh, you who died as a substitute for sin. And Jesus, bring that one to saving faith in you, to trust in you as their Savior and Lord. And Lord, those who do know you here, who feel lousy because of uh, temptation has tripped them up, or maybe they chose to sin actively of their own volition and now realize what a horrible thing they've done. I pray that you would bring them to confession, repentance, and remind them that they approach not on their performance, but on the basis of your son's performance. Jesus, let us boldly approach the throne of grace because of the life you lived for us. Savior, we ask this in your name. Amen.